Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Christopher Bohm will join us to discuss moral origins. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show. Well, humans have an innate morality. While values differ from person to person and from group to group, every human society has some form of the golden rule and a systematic way to punish violators. But while morality is universal, its evolutionary origins are muddled. Shouldn't natural selection eliminate the impulse to be kind to others, especially when it means improving their well-being at the expense of our own? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Christopher Bohm. Professor Bohm is the director of the Jane Goodall Research Center and professor of biological sciences and anthropology at the University of South Southern California in Los Angeles. Bohm's work has been featured in such publications as New Scientist, the New York Times, the Times, Natural History, Science News, and Films for National Geographic, Wild Kingdom, and others. Bohm is the author of several previous books, including Hierarchy in the Forest, and his latest release, entitled Moral Origins, the Evolution of Virtue, Altruism, and Shame, explores this issue for a general audience. And Professor Bohm, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. Uh, certainly a great book, uh, Moral Origins, in which you explore the evolution of virtue, altruism, and shame. Uh, I'm curious, why did you decide to write the book? Uh, you know, I, it, it was so long ago I can't even tell you. I've always been interested in morality, and once I started studying chimpanzees, I'm a cultural anthropologist uh, by origin, uh, once I started studying apes, I realized that this would be an opportunity to put together human information and ape information and, and write an evolutionary story about how morals evolved. Uh, most studies of moral origins uh, look at how morality might possibly be selected in terms of altruism or selfishness and so forth. But what I chose to do was to tell the entire story over time of how morals evolved. And I think this will be about the first uh, treatment that, that looks at a broad natural historical purview in, in trying to uh, figure out how moral origins took place. I see. So you think previous accounts of, of morality have been a little limited in their scope? Uh, they've been quite limited, uh, although very interesting. They don't actually go back in time and try to say, okay, what was the head start we might have had uh, in the direction of getting uh, to morals? And what actual archaeological findings, for example, or findings from primatology can we apply in trying to figure out the, the long-term historical story? And it is something of a conundrum for evolution because animals are supposed to be self-interested, yet here we are helping others. Uh, yes, uh, this is a very big problem. It has received t literally tons of ink uh, since 19, uh, roughly 1975 when Edward O. Wilson uh, got everything started by defining sociobiology and 
uh, he, he was very interested in the problem of altruism, although he sort of wrote it off as something that's very difficult to, to uh, explain. Altruism is linked very closely with morality because morals are based on our having feelings, not only of empathy for others, but we actually have empathy for the rules of our groups, and that makes us unique. There is no other animal that internalizes rules and feels badly about breaking a rule even if nobody's around. Uh, this is something that's uniquely human. And why is it then humans have evolved this trade whereas other animals have not? Well, humans have a, this enormous head start of having a, a giant brain. And the best guesses on why our brains are so large would be that we went through so many perverse climates in evolving uh, through the Pleistocene with all of its ups and downs. Uh, uh, of course, as it's well known now that the Pleistocene climates were much, much more difficult to cope with than the ones we've had for the last 10 or 12,000 years. And the theory is that humans had to be very, very flexible to get through this Pleistocene ordeal, as it were, and that our brains just kept getting larger and larger because we were solving problems uh, better and better, or to put it differently, those who solved problems better uh, with large brains were the ones who survived and therefore brains kept getting larger. And once you've got a very large brain, then you can start doing interesting things socially as well as in terms of your subsistence. And uh, at some point, we began to build on what we had from an ape ancestor, and we got, got to be moral. And there are definitely some precursors in the ape uh, that is shared by ourselves and chimpanzees and bonobos that uh, made it easier for morality to evolve. So in terms of the, the historical or the evidence, what sort of evidence uh, shows the emergence of altruism, moral behaviors in humans? Well, altruism does not uh, appear in a bone fragment <laughs> or a stone tool or whatever, obviously. And we do not yet have any identification of genes that make us altruists even though we know that those genes are, are there, and they may be huge numbers of genes, and they may have multi-functions, so it may be a quite a complicated matter ever to figure out uh, what an altruistic gene is, and yet we know that humans have proclivities to altruism because small children will try to help, and when I say small, I mean infants, uh, will try to help somebody if they can perceive that they need assistance. So they're, 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 on the one hand, we know there are genes doing this work. On the other hand, we can't identify them. So if we want to identify altruism uh, prehistorically, uh, there are two points at which I can discuss it. One point would be 45,000 years ago, and that was when the humans became what we call anatomically and culturally modern. Uh, those humans were indistinguishable from us physically. And if you look at what they left behind archaeologically, their culture was just as complex and varied and flexible and creative as ours is. So we just assume that 45,000 years ago, these people were doing everything that we do. And when I say we, I mean hunter-gatherers today. So, uh, and hunter-gatherers today, of course, have morals just as we do. Uh, those of us who live in urban societies. So uh, we have that one point at which we can say with a great deal of confidence 
uh, we were moral 45,000 years ago. The next thing we have to do is look for highly inferential evidence. For example, if humans began to cooperate and cooperate intensively, uh, altruism, although absolutely I can't say that it had to have been there, it was very, very likely. And we know that a quarter of a million years ago, humans began to hunt large game. And the only way you can do this is by cooperating, not only in getting the game, but you also have to share it cooperatively without a lot of conflict. And so at that point, altruism would have become very useful to uh, humans, and uh, therefore it seems likely that uh, at the point where we can discern cooperation in our subsistence patterns, that we were becoming altruists. And certainly in a, in a group that has to cooperate, a higher number of altruists is going to make that group more successful. Therefore, group selection could have been contributing to the altruistic part of the gene pool at the expense of the selfish, selfish sort of social predators who try to prey on altruists. So the benefits of cooperation for survival essentially won out over the lone individual. Well, individual selection has always been very, very strong in humans and virtually any other species. The only species in which this is untrue would be social insects like ants and bees, where the individual is, in a sense, just part of a larger family. Uh, but human, humans cooperate even when they're not related, and that's what makes our cooperation so fascinating. As societies then began to grow, there was the problem of a free rider. Well, the classical models from George Williams, a biologist, a brilliant biologist, who did mathematical models, what Williams told us was that altruism would have a very difficult time in evolving because as soon as you have altruistic genes that come in as mutants, the altruists may begin to proliferate, but at the same time, mutant free rider genes will enter the picture, and the free riders are basically individuals who are designed to take advantage of altruists. Now, when I say designed, I don't mean anything like, uh, you know, some uh, mind that is controlling evolution, but we talk about evolutionary design because evolution arrives at problem solutions. Uh, it does it does so blindly and randomly, but it's, they still look as though they've been designed. And so the free rider is designed to take advantage of altruists. And according to Williams' models, and everyone agrees, once you have free riders and they're designed to take advantage of altruists and you have altruists who are designed to give stuff away to other people, even if it's not in their self-interest, uh, pretty quickly the free rider genes are going to outclass the altruist genes and the altruists will go away or the, their genes will remain at extremely low frequencies. So free riders are a major theoretical problem. Now, if we look at hunter-gatherers, we see that although they have altruists, they also have free riders, and somehow this, the two seem to be coexisting together. And uh, in my book, Moral Origins, I've tried to uh, explore this problem and see exactly why the free riders are not simply suffocating the altruists, uh, taking advantage of them, uh, reducing their relative fitness compared to the free riders to a point where the altruist genes go away. And the answer is that humans have social control. Social control means that the group puts pressure on people, that it ostracizes them, it shames them, 
But it also goes further than that. It sometimes kicks them out of the group, which for a hunter-gatherer is close to a death sentence. And it also executes people. Hunter-gatherers in small bands regularly kill social predators in their midst. And these, of course, are the free riders. So really the, the emergence of free riders co-evolved with the social pressure to push out the free riders. Well, yeah, the, the, the social pressure merely manipulates free riders so they don't take their free rides, in which case their genes can stay around even though their actual behaviors are being suppressed. The altruists in the group have other ways also of flourishing, one of which is that altruists will tend to choose other altruists when it comes to uh, useful partnerships. Uh, the, of course, marriage is a, a huge uh, example of a useful partnership uh, since both parties share in the benefits of procreation, which is what evolution is mainly about. And if free riders are choosing free riders and altruists are choosing altruists, it means that the altruists uh, who work well together and are generous in doing so are going to have much better fitness than the pairs of free riders who will be trying to cheat each other and shirk and so forth. So another, although punishment is one way that free riders are disadvantaged, another way is that they are relatively disadvantaged because altruists form these useful partnerships with each other and they choose each other. And that leaves only the free riders, uh, they're sort of the leftovers who have to choose each other. Is there really just a balance between the altruists and the, the free riders in society? Well, I, I think there's a balance between the two in this, in this sense. The altruists are getting more benefits than they're losing. They're losing some, some, some of their fitness by being altruists. But if they, if they do it with another altruist who's going to pay them back in kind, then they're not really losing, and their partnership actually means they both gain relative to people that do not have such altruistic partnerships. Uh, we were just talking about that. And that means that the altruists can stay in business. That is, their genes can hang around in the gene pool. Now, if we look at free riders, the worst free riders are going to get themselves executed through capital punishment or kicked out of the group, which can be disastrous, or ostracized. Now, even being ostracized hurts your fitness because ostracism involves a, a virtual total lack of social contact with other people in your group. They're shunning you. And that means that you can't enter into normal cooperation arrangements because you're denied the social contact. So that's going to hurt your fitness. So the free riders who express their free riding tendencies, which would be to steal, to cheat, and to bully others and take things away from them. Uh, the people that do this are going to be essentially disadvantaged if they express these tendencies. However, if they keep from expressing the tendencies, they control themselves, then they are not going to pay these damages, as it were, and they'll uh, not do so badly in terms of fitness. So the moderate free rider who can control himself or herself is a free rider whose genes can stay in the gene pool. And in fact, uh, we talk about free rider genes as though they were a special gene, but they don't merely serve to take advantage of altruists. Free rider genes probably are hooked in with genes that make people able to compete well. And even in a group that's cooperative and values altruism and disvalues free riders, people are still 
tolerant of what we would call normal normal competition. That is, competing for a, a spouse, for example, would be an example. This is a legitimate means of competition in a hunting and gathering band. So the upshot of it is that uh, some free riders are going to be killed or, or disadvantaged, but those who control themselves, their free rider genes can stick around in the gene pool just like the altruist genes do. And there's an interesting further ramification of this. Free rider is basically someone who is going to behave himself because he has a conscience. And one of the main theses in the book is that the human conscience arose because people needed to control themselves. And the reason they needed to control themselves was that humans became smart enough to start acting as entire groups and to punish social predators, the people who would take advantage of them. And this would include not only a bully, which in nicer terms we call an alpha male, but also a thief or a cheater. And I have some fairly specific analyses in the book uh, based on hunter-gatherer behavior that show that when it comes to capital punishment in hunting bands, bullies are by far the most often singled out. And they, of course, are the most potent free riders because uh, they don't merely cheat you. They don't have to. They just take whatever they want. What we have then is a situation in which the conscience evolved as a means of restricting one's own aggressions and thereby staying out of trouble with the group. And the effect for the group is that the altruists are much less threatened by the social predators we call free riders. But free rider type behavior still persists because of a little bit of benefit. That's right. The hmm. free rider is, is going to be a, a pretty good competitor. And if he can, can hold the antisocial side of his free riding down by having a conscience, then he, he actually is he, he's equipped to compete in normal contexts that are approved of by the group. And that's, that's why free rider and genes and altruist genes can coexist in the same gene pool. The, the assumption since 1975 has been it's sort of like an either-or situation. Either the altruists have to win or the free riders have to win. And in my opinion, uh, they can both win and they, their genes can both stick around because of the conscience. So morality has actually changed the nature of the relationship between altruists and free riders, but just for humans. Given that all, all of our instincts uh, evolved in this Paleolithic setting, how does it play out then in the modern world? Well, in, in modern society, we have nations. And like hunter-gatherer bands, they punish people uh, if they uh, break the criminal code or whatever, or the civil code for that matter, so that social predators are also coped with. But in a modern nation, we have a very different sort of social situation in that most of us live in large anonymous urban societies and one type of free riding gene which is extreme is that which makes a person into a sociopath or a psychopath as, as we now call it and this is simply a person who is born with very weak ties between uh, whatever conscience they have and self-control. A psychopath, uh, let's start with a normal person. A normal person identifies with the rules of their group. Uh, They have an emotional attachment to those rules such that even if they break a rule and there's nobody observing them, they still feel badly about it. A psychopath has no such emotional contact with with the rules of the group or or association or connection. Uh, A psychopath basically 
if I can get away with it, I feel fine. And this is a huge problem in a very anonymous urban society where it is not such a problem in a hunting band. In a hunting band, everyone knows everyone else very, very well. Uh, these people spend a good part of their time gossiping, just as we do. And the difference is that there is almost nothing that you can get away with without it becoming known. Uh, you might steal successfully once or twice, but once it's a pattern, someone's going to figure out who it is. In a modern society, we have serial killers that we catch occasionally after many, many years of successful depredations. We have others we never catch at all. And these people can flourish. They are ultimate social predators. They're, in a sense, free riders. Uh, look at a serial rapist who has all kinds of reproductive success at the expensive victims, and therefore you would expect a psychopathic uh, set of genes to be able to flourish. This would not have been possible in a hunting band. So we have very different kinds of problems. Then if we move up to the world level, uh, the global level of our entire world of nations, we have a rather incomplete moral system. Our nations have laws, they have criminal codes, they have specific punishment and so forth and so on. Uh, the United Nations is a work in progress. It has no permanent authority because there's a veto in the Security Council. And so our world of nations, it's not quite there uh, in terms of international security. Of course, what morality is all about is, as groups practice it, is keeping down conflict in the group, stopping the kinds of social predatory behavior that will stir a conflict and then disrupt the group and possibly destroy it. And internationally, we, we, we're still working on these problems. Very optimistic that uh, higher form of altruism can evolve. Uh, altruism, if it evolves further, we're talking about at least a thousand generations for anything significant to happen. And a thousand human generations, if it were dogs, it would be maybe a thousand years. But for humans, it's 25,000 years. And so it's rather difficult to say what's going on with modern society as opposed to hunting bands. Uh, we certainly punish serious free riders as hunting bands used to. In fact, some of our punishments include capital punishment, uh, depending on which state you live in or which country. And uh, But certainly... Long-term prison sentences also have a very nullifying effect on reproductive success or fitness. So we are continuing some of the patterns of hunter-gatherers, and that should keep the selection pressures similar, and that, therefore that would sort of tend to regulate the rates of altruistic genes and free rider genes in our gene pools. On the other hand, in a hunting band, an altruist will find an altruist, and they'll they'll profit from finding one another. And it seems as though this could be happening in our own uh, type of society as well, but it hasn't been studied. So I'm a little bit hesitant to answer your question any further. And it's very hard to measure. There is one study in a hunting band, where, which is uh, discussed in the book, which involves the anthropologist going out to the society, looking at what happens when a person is temporarily incapacitated. This is a society in which people get their food every day on an everyday basis. So if you're out of business for some medical reason, uh, or you're wounded or snake bit or whatever, need help. They looked carefully to see whether the altruists were 
receiving more or less help compared to free riders. And here, here was their finding. They measured both how much help the people received when they were temporarily incapacitated and how much they helped others when they were not incapacitated and also how productive they were in general. And what they discovered was that the people who were helped the most when they had temporarily uh, hard times were people who were very productive and very generous. But from there on, it became much less apparent and obvious uh, in, in what their findings showed. Uh, for example, the people who were helped the very least were ones who were very productive but rather stingy. So actually, they helped people quite a bit but they didn't help them uh, as much as they might have compared to their means. And these people uh, received the very least help when they were in trouble. The people who received, uh, who came in second on receiving help were people who were very unproductive, so they had very little to give away, but were very altruistic in giving it. So they would give until it hurt, and they would give small amounts that actually meant something to them because they did not have a surplus. So they were second in receiving help. Third in receiving help were people called ne'er-do-wells who simply were unproductive and stingy. So curiously, the people who gave quite a bit away but were stingy were at the bottom of this totem pole. Apparently, altruism is valued and stinginess is disvalued. And both of these uh, characteristics, therefore, affect people's fitness and certainly getting help when you're in trouble is, is important to fitness quite directly. And it gives us some clues as to how these things work. Now, whether such relationships can be discerned in a modern society is a task for probably a psychologist or a sociologist. And it'd be very interesting to see if there are any parallels. But right now we don't have them. Well, uh, in sort of winding this up, um, one thing I should emphasize is that if you look all the way back to the ancestor of humans and chimpanzees and bonobos, you'll see that there were some precursors for morality. Morality did not appear uh, out of the evolutionary whole cloth, as it were. There were what we call pre-adaptations, which didn't point in the direction of morality, but they made it easier for morality to evolve once uh, the environment uh, favored this. One thing a chimpanzee can do is to understand someone else's thoughts and feelings. This is terribly important uh, because morality is based on empathy and predicting other people's uh, reactions, taking an understanding from them and translating it into how the group might react so that you know how to behave yourself and, and control yourself. Another thing that is absolutely critical to this process, which we also find in these great apes, is self-recognition. That is, they can tell who it is when they look in a mirror. A monkey cannot, a dog cannot, a human can, an elephant can, a dog cannot, but a chimpanzee or bonobo can definitely say in sign language if necessary, that's me in the mirror. And understanding who you are is very important in taking your place in a moral society and navigating its perils because the perils include capital punishment, expulsion from the group, ostracism, and so forth. So this gave us a head start in the direction of morality, even though there was no guidance involved, even though evolution is basically a blind process. We did have some wherewithal to, for evolution to build upon. Uh, other things that were present in the ancestor 
would include an ability to form coalitions, that is, groups that have a purpose. And these coalitions actually sometimes punish bullying behavior in bonobos and chimpanzees. And this was a critical part of human morality was getting rid of alpha males because once we, uh, once we reached a point where we wanted to be hunters, we had to get rid of alpha males or they would have hogged all the meat. And hunters that hunt as a team need to share the meat. So morality enabled us to do these things. And there are deep roots, ancestral roots, for the evolution of morality. The new book is called Moral Origins, The Evolution of Virtue, Altruism, and Shame, and the author is Professor Christopher Bohm. Professor Bohm, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.